I want to welcome you to Center Church. I'm Pastor Jeremy. I serve as one of the pastors here on staff, and so I have the honor and privilege of bringing you the Word of God this morning. So if you have your Bible, either get it out or turn it on, and meet me in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Meet me in Matthew 28, verse 18. We are going to be looking this morning at the Great Commission. We are taking a brief pause from our Hebrew study. We will pick it up again next week, because this morning I have been tasked with discussing a a topic that we want to see take place, that we are asking God to take place here at Center Church Brenham, and that is this. We want to see a culture of discipleship. We want to be known as a people who are about discipling others towards the good news of Jesus Christ and helping them to see the, the goodness of who He is in such a way that it changes them and transforms their lives. So we want to see a culture of discipleship taking place. And, but here's my concern. Let, let's kind of just, let's just lay it all out here at the beginning. My concern. My concern is that many of you in this room, you are actually like this red cup, cup here in front of me. Yes, I used to be a youth pastor, so here's my illustration. And it's an illustration to tell you my main point of the sermon. So if you remember this illustration, you get my sermon no matter how old or young you are. But many of us in our church culture, we, we are the red cup. We come to church and we come to our gatherings and our missional communities and our quick groups and we do our Bible studies all with the expectation that the church would just pour into us. Just pour into me. Pour into me. Pour into me. But the church is designed to equip you. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians... That we are designed to equip you to do the work of ministry. And as a church leader, my expectation is that as we pour into you week in and week out, we expect you to go pour into others. But so many of us in this room, this is what our discipleship looks like. Nothing comes out. Because we only expect us to be poured into without the expectation of going and pouring out into others. And there's many reasons for this. Some of us are just afraid. We're afraid that we don't know what to say. We're afraid that we don't know what to do. We're afraid we don't know how to, how to make disciples. We're, we're just afraid. Some of us were just too busy. Because let's be honest, discipleship is messy, time-consuming work. It's dealing with people. It's dealing with people that are messed up and walking with Jesus. That a place where it's, we want to say center church is a place where it's okay to not be okay, but we just don't want you to stay there very long. So discipleship takes time and, and it takes energy and effort. And so it's about, well, we're too busy or we just don't know or we're just unprepared or whatever excuse we want to make. But I want you to know today that in the Great Commission, Jesus is going to completely destroy every excuse about making disciples. So here's what I want you to take away from my sermon today. I don't want you to be the red cup. I want you to be the blue cup. And no, this has nothing to do with the matrix. I want you to become the blue cup. In such a way that when we as Center Church, when we pour into you, when we pour in to make disciples of you, that naturally every single one of you, a culture of discipleship says that as we pour into you, that you begin to go out and you begin to pour into others. So, the Great Commission actually teaches us how to go from being the red cup, it really does sound like Morpheus in this moment, doesn't it, to the blue cup. 
So if you have your Bible, I want to share with you how this takes place in Matthew 28. Let me briefly give you a quick update as to where we are in Matthew's gospel. Jesus has just died on the cross for our sins. In Matthew's gospel, he has just died for the sins of the entire world and he was just placed into a tomb. Now, the beauty of the cross, you say, how can there be beauty in the cross and the death of Jesus? The beauty of the cross is that Jesus, the easiest way, if you say, Jeremy, tell me the most simple definition of the gospel, it is this. Jesus took our place. The cross was actually reserved for us as sinners. It's a means in which God's wrath was poured out for our sin. The beauty of the cross is that instead of pouring out his wrath on us, he poured it out on his perfect son. That Jesus took our place. He took the death and the consequence that sin that we rightly deserved for our sin on that cross. And so they took his body down. Now, you say, well, Jeremy, how do you know he was fully dead? Well, in one of our other Gospels, we see that the writer says that a soldier, a Roman soldier, stabbed him in the heart with a spear. Now, I want you to know, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor in that kind of sense. But I'm pretty sure that our biology textbooks teach us that if somebody stabs you in the heart, you're dead. Can we all kind of agree to that? Thank you. Kaysen, my man. So they buried him in a tomb. It was a Friday night when Jesus died. It was a Friday when Jesus died. And Saturday, the Jews have a Sabbath. So they don't do any work on the Sabbath. It is their day of rest. And in Matthew 28, we come and we pick up on that Sunday. And on that Sunday, two Marys. Two Marys, they go and visit the tomb because they were going to prepare Jesus' body for burial. And what's amazing about their story is as they get to the tomb, an angel appears and rolls the stone away. So so magnificent was this angel that the, the two guards that were guarding Jesus' tomb fell down as if they were dead. But the angel, he looks to the two Marys and he says, Marys? I don't know if he said Marys that way, but he says, Greetings. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid because Jesus is not in there. In fact, Jesus is alive. Jesus has resurrected from the dead. And he says, so don't fear. He says, this is what I want you to do, Marys. Marys, I want you to go get Jesus' disciples and go with them to Galilee to a mountain. Tell them to go to this mountain and this place and they are going to meet Jesus. And I'm sure these Marys are walking back to the disciples, maybe running back to the disciples. And they're like, did we just really see that? Like, what are they going to think about us when we get there and tell them we went to the tomb, an angel rolled the tomb away, the, the stone away, and Jesus isn't there and he told us to come tell you to go to Galilee to the mountain. Like, what are they going to think we're crazy? Well, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus himself shows up to see the Marys and he says greetings. And they're like, oh, it's you. You really are alive. And they begin to worship at his feet and they begin to have a good God sized fear in them. And they're like, it's you, Jesus, you are alive. And he says to the Marys, you remember what that angel I sent told you to do? Well, let me tell you again. Go get my disciples and send them to the mountain in Galilee. Now, the resurrection is vital for our Christian faith. Without the resurrection, Paul says, we're the people most to be pitied. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that he has defeated sin. It proves that he has defeated death because he's alive. And it proves that he has defeated the enemy, Satan. And so the resurrection is our proof that Jesus offers us as dead people, dead in our sins, new life in himself. Remember, the simplest, the simplest phrase of the gospel is, Jesus took my place. And he offers and extends himself as a gift to all who call upon his name. 
So the disciples, they run to this mountain that Jesus has told them to go to. I think there's many reasons that they run to the mountain. I think some of them had faith. They're like, yeah, we knew this was going to happen. He told us, let's go see. I think some of them were kind of curious. Like, uh, these Marys just told us this. Let's kind of go see what it is. You know, it's kind of like what you do whenever you're driving down the road and you see a cop pull somebody, pull somebody over, right? In Texas, I'm just telling you, I've only lived here for, since March. But in Texas, everybody speeds. It's like just natural thing. Like everybody's just speeding all over the place. Unless a cop is on the side of the road and they got people out. Then everybody slows down. And they all slow down because they want to look. What do they do? I wonder what they did. Shame, shame. And then you speed back up. I think some of the disciples are like that. Like, let's just go see. Let's just go see if this Jesus does pop up or not. So they get to the mount that Jesus had told them to go to. And guess what? Jesus showed up. He appears to them. Some believe, some doubt. But he appears to them in his resurrection. And then he gives them these final words in Matthew 28, verse 18. And you need to know something. One of my professors used to always say, last words are lasting words. And these are Jesus' last words to us before he ascends into heaven. And these last words are lasting words, not just for the disciples who hear them, for every disciple in the sound of my voice who hears them now. This is our, if you want to know, this is our mission as Christians. This is our purpose in life as Christians. This is our goal as Christians. Jesus tells them this, read along with me in Matthew 18. He begins, all authority, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So let me ask a question then. If, if some of us are the red cup this morning, how does Jesus control our fears? If some of us are the red cup, and how does Jesus control our concerns or our lack of commitment to making disciples. Well, the first thing Jesus says, if you notice in here, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been what? Given to me. Let me give it to you in layman's terms. The first thing we have to understand about Jesus is that Jesus has all the power. He's all powerful. He says, everything over creation is mine. I have been given all authority because of my work for you. Now, let me ask you a question. Doesn't that change the way you think about discipleship? Because if he has all power, then he can use us in any way he sees fit, right? Many people are afraid to make disciples because they're afraid to make mistakes. But can I be honest with you this morning? Jesus is bigger than your mistakes. We've all made mistakes. That's why we all have been counted as sin. But guess what? Jesus is bigger than sin. Then therefore, Jesus has to be bigger than our mistakes. And so you worry about nothing. Because you go out and make disciples under the power of Jesus himself. Personal testimony here on that particular topic. Uh, when I was witnessing to a man in the Middle East one time, a long time ago, um, he was a devout Muslim and we and him were having great conversations and I was just sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel. I was very young in my faith, so I didn't know a whole, whole lot. And, uh, and so he asked me a question about the Trinity and I straight up, straight up, your pastor made a mistake. I straight up taught modalism, which is a heresy, right? And I didn't know it was a heresy at the time. And I'm like, oh, well, this makes sense to me, so it must make sense to him. And, uh, and so I made the mistake in my own testimony in evangelism. But what's interesting is that each time when God places that young man on my heart, I pray two things immediately as he brings them into my mind. Number one, I pray, God, you are all powerful, so let him just remember the gospel. 
I was very clear on the gospel. Jesus took your place and my place. And I said, and number two, God, because you are all powerful, just use your Jedi mind trick and like erase that modalism stuff out of his brain. The reality is, though, that Jesus can use even our mistakes to make disciples because he has all the power. The second way that we change in this idea of being fearful or too busy or reason why we don't make disciples is that we see that Jesus says at the end of this commission, he says, but behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So not only does Jesus have all power, but he gives you his presence. Let me give you a hint here. This means that you're not alone in your discipleship. Jesus is with you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit in you, the power of God in you to make disciples because he is with you. Wherever you go, wherever you, God sends you, Jesus is with you to make disciples. Doesn't that comfort you? It does me. So therefore, when we look at Jesus' own statement about all authority and power and his presence, that should naturally move us away from the red cup towards the blue cup. Now, let's see the commission. From this truth about Jesus' power and presence in the life of us believers, let's look at what he tells us to do in light of his power and presence. Verse 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, in those verses, the main verb is make disciples. So our task as Christians, our mission as Christians and living the Christian life is to, number one, make disciples. And the three participles that Jesus uses here are go, teach, and baptize. So in other words, those three words are a blueprint for discipleship. In the original languages, the participles take on the same form of the verbs. So if make disciples is our task, we make disciples by going, by teaching, and by baptizing. That's the whole point of the text. That's our blueprint for discipleship. And that's how we're going to be a culture of discipleship here at Center Church Brenham. But notice where he tells us to make disciples of. It says make disciples of what? All nations. You and I, our discipleship extends to the end of the earth. Our mission doesn't rest until every single man, woman, and child on this planet has heard the name of Jesus and the good news of the gospel. And we should give our lives to that task. Because didn't Jesus just give his life for us? Death, resurrection, Jesus tells us what to do with that. So I want to do two things. Number one, I'm really going to focus in on, I'm going to give you a strategy. I'm going to give you a pathway for discipleship this morning. So if you're asking like, hmm, I want to go from the red cup to the blue cup, but how do I go to the blue cup and start pouring out into the lives of others? I got five ways for you to do that. Five simple ways to make disciples. But I need to clarify something on discipleship. When I use the word culture of discipleship, there's two prongs to that discipleship culture. The first one, when Jesus says go to the nations, the first prong of discipleship is evangelism. That we are to share the good news of Jesus. That we are to share that Jesus took their place, that he rose from the grave, and that he will bring them into a new life in Christ and send them out to go do his business. So the first thing you have to see and understand is that Jesus' commission is for us to evangelize, to go and share the gospel. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time here because on September 18th, I'm going to teach you an evangelism class. I'm going to give you tools, three tools, to evangelize after church on September 18th. So you want to mark that down, 
write it in your calendar, whatever you need to do. September 18th, Pastor Jeremy is preaching an evangelism class to you on going to make disciples. Number two, Jesus says that we are to make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father and Holy Spirit. This is a part of the evangelism process of discipleship. As you go out and share the gospel, and as people come to know Christ through faith in Him, we are called as a church, we are called as disciples to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, the purpose here is that we are to show them that they have a new identity in Christ. Now let me tell you something. This is one of our most powerful evangelism tools today. Everybody in this world, and even some in this room, are building their identities in the wrong things. You're building your identity in things that will always fail you. Some of you maybe, or some of the people that you're engaging with, they might be building their identity in their career, or their money, or their status, or their relationships, their spouse, or their children. I mean, we see this all the time, right? Parents living vicariously through their children. Many of us are putting our identity in the wrong thing. What, what happens when that identity, when that, when that goes away? Have you ever met a man who put his identity in his career? Or his title or his position. And when he retired or he got fired. What do you see happen to that individual? It's almost like they feel like they no longer exist and have purpose. Why? Because their identity was wrapped up in something that couldn't be wrapped up in. It doesn't have the ability to be wrapped in. And Jesus tells us one of the ways we make disciples is by baptizing. To show them that they have a new, been given a new identity in Christ. And when you have an identity in Jesus. No matter what comes your way. No matter if you lose your job, no matter if you lose your spouse, no matter if you lose a child, no matter what comes your way, your identity is secure in the one who secured it for you in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus. Now, let me be careful here. That doesn't make your life any easier. It doesn't make it any easier when you suffer loss or grief or suffer. But I will tell you one thing. It helps you cope with it differently with a hope in the one who has made you his own. The one who has all power and the one who has the presence to help you walk through the darkest days of your life. Not because you have an identity and something that this world wants to give you, but because of your identity that is founded and secured and stable in Jesus. That's why Jesus says, this is how you make disciples. You always remind your disciples of their identity in me. That they are a follower of Jesus. The word Christians actually means little Christ. It used to be derogatory in the, way back, way back when. But today, we take it as a sign of, yep, you can call me a Christian any day of the week. I'm glad that you call me a little Christ, because that means that my life is reflecting the identity that he has given me. So I'm going to spend the rest of my moments here in teaching, in the last part of teaching. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So here's five steps. If you're sitting here today and you're going, hmm, how do I go from the red cup to the blue cup? Here's five ways. Are you ready? And I did them in one words. So that way, everybody in here can pick them up. I don't even have long sentences. Just a word. Number one, grow. Grow. You can't be being poured. You can't pour out if you don't have anything to pour out. Now, two things here. Number one, if you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, then you cannot make a disciple of Jesus. Because you can't make somebody into something that you're not. But I want you to know, if you're not a follower of Jesus today, man, Jesus, right now through his word, is calling out to your heart. He's drawing your soul in to say, everything that, I'm, that this guy up here is saying on the stage is absolutely true. 
I did take your place. I did rise from the grave. I will give you a new identity and a new life in me. And it is a free gift. You just have to reach out and grab it by faith. And when you reach out and grab it by faith, as any believer in here can attest to, it will change your life. It will change. He will change your life. And so you can't make a disciple of Jesus if you're not a follower of Jesus yourself. But if you are a follower of Jesus, then you need to be growing as a follower of Jesus. If you're not growing, you have nothing to pour out. John Maxwell, one of the great leadership gurus of our day, he got done speaking at a conference one time, and a young man walked up to John Maxwell and he said, John, I don't know if he said it that way, maybe he said Mr. Maxwell. That's what I would, I said Dr. Maxwell, sir. He said, I want to do what you do. And John Maxwell looked at him and he said, well, of course you do. I just got done speaking to 2,000 people about leadership. They're out there right now selling my books. I'm about to go sit at that table and sign all the books that I just sold. Why wouldn't you want my life right now? He turned at the young man and he said this. But are you willing to do what I did to get here? That young man changed immediately. He said, are you willing to do and take the steps that I took 30, 40 years later to get to where I am today? Are you willing to quit your job and start a leadership organization? And he had a cushy job at a big church that was doing well. Are you willing to make the sacrifices financially and with your family? Are you willing to pour your life into leadership tactics and principles and and, and books? Are you willing to write all the time so you can publish books and works and put your message out there? Are you willing to sacrifice time with your family to go on these speaking tours after you write these? Are you willing to do the work that I did to get to where I am today? He said, because if you're not, you'll never get here. What is John Maxwell really telling us about discipleship, if you want to put it into this context? You can't take people where you haven't been yourself. If you're not growing as a follower of Jesus, if you're not spending time in the Word, if you're not growing, learning good theology or listening to good sermons, if you're not, if you're not growing in a, in a community of believers, if, if you're not having a strong prayer life, if you're not evangelizing and sharing the gospel, if you're not doing any of that, then how can you turn and teach others to do that? And I would argue that you can't. So number one, you have to grow. And if you're like, Jeremy, I don't know any theology books. I don't know any good preachers. I don't even know how to pray or read my Bible. Well, guess what? I have good news for you this morning. That's what Center Church is all about. You just come to me. I'll give you. I got a paper. I got a chapter right now. I printed off for a man in this room right now. If he came up and asked me, hey, you got any, some good stuff on this? Like, yes, I do. You come to my office. You will see that there is a mound of books that you can see. And there's a mound of books you can't see. I will help you in growing as a follower of Jesus so that you can turn around and make disciples. Number two, pray. I know, you're like, Jeremy, I thought you were going to give me some easy, like, some, like, no, like things I hadn't even thought about. Pray. If we look at Jesus' ministry, the one time that he spends all night praying is when he's getting ready to call his 12 disciples to himself. We find this in Luke's Gospel. He spends, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the one with all power and authority, he spends all night praying to the Father about who the 12 are he's going to call to himself. If our Savior spends that kind of time in prayer, how much more should we be spending in prayer about God bringing people into our lives to disciple? Pray. Two prayers that you can ask. Number one, God, bring somebody in my life today that I can share the gospel with. Now, Warning, disclaimer, 
When you pray that prayer, you better be ready for when he does it. I can't tell, tell you how many times I've prayed God brings somebody into my life and it's like, boom, 30 minutes later, here comes somebody into my life. Share the gospel. So when you pray it, you better be ready because he'll bring them. And then number two, you pray, God, who should I be pouring into? Jeremy's saying that I need to be poured into and growing in a way that I can pour out into others. So who should I be pouring into? Well, let me help you. If, you're, if you just prayed that prayer just now, I'm going to give you three people. If you're in this room, I've got three people for you to, to, to do that with. All right, number one, if you're a husband in this room, look next to, your, next to wherever your spouse is. And if she's in children's ministry, then just look with your mind. She's in there with her hair everywhere and she's trying to take care of all those crazy rowdies. Husbands, your job is to disciple your wife. Now, let's be very careful. I'm going to write this on my blog this week. But I just want you to know something. If you don't disciple these people, if you don't disciple people in your life towards the gospel, the rest of the culture has no problem discipling us. And they will disciple us towards the worst, most painful, destructive things on the planet. So husbands, it's your job to disciple your wife. Paul tells us it's very clear that we as husbands are the spiritual leaders of our homes. That means that we are either leading our wife to Jesus or we are leading our wife away from Jesus. So if you just prayed, God, who should I be discipling? And you're a husband. God has answered your wife. You're welcome. Number two, if you are a parent in this room, God has very clearly outlined that parents, it is your primary task to disciple your children. Once again, if you don't disciple them, the world will. Discipleship takes place in the home. Parents, you and I are the primary responsible parties for the discipleship of our children. That's our job. We don't give that to the church. We don't give that to anybody else. God has said you are to raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, the church helps you. The church comes alongside you and reinforces what they're already learning at home, but you cannot give away your discipleship authority to your children. I love this about our culture here at, at Center Church. I think, I think last Sunday, last Sunday, we saw a culture of discipleship that I had been praying for at Center Church. Last Sunday, we saw Tara influencing Clarissa. And Clarissa was saved at a young age. She just finally understood what baptism meant. And that's why she came and got baptized. And, and it came because Tara was influencing Carissa, discipling her towards Jesus. And so last week, Tara came up to me after we got done. And she's like, you've got to put some, some tissue papers out here because we're all bawling with joy. I said, yes, ma'am, we'll do that next time. We'll have tissue stands everywhere. But what I loved last week about our culture of discipleship is that as soon as Clarissa came out of that water, she jumped out of that trough. I think that's what it's called. And she was soaking wet and she takes Aubrey and she says, I've, because of what Tara has done in me and because Tara has discipled and influenced me, I have turned and I have discipled and influenced Aubrey and she's in next and I'm going to dunk her right behind me. That is what I pray we see here at Center Church every single Sunday. That that baptism that we have out there doesn't turn stay upside down for long. In fact, the only time we have to get rid of the water because people in this room are making disciples who make disciples, the only time we have to get rid of that water is we've got to turn it out because it's too dirty to, get, to put anybody in it. It's just unhealthy. Because we're just baptizing so many people all the time. That is what a culture of discipleship truly looks like. And I think God will do it here. The only thing that it's going to have to take is going to have to take you and me moving from this cup to this cup. So you disciple your children. Number three. 
Look around the room. You disciple your brothers and sisters in Christ. Man, if you're, if you're a young believer and you see somebody that's walking with Jesus, you go up to that person and you're like, will you disciple me? Answered prayer if you prayed that prayer. Number two, if you're an older person in this room that has been walking with Jesus for a long time, there are people in this room who need you. The empty nest generation, you can't go skate on us. We need you now more than ever. Because you've walked with Jesus longer. You know what it's like to walk with Jesus and experience life, the ups and the downs of life. We need you as a younger generation and as young children. We need you, older disciples, to pour into us. So don't think, oh, I'm retired, I don't have to do anything. No. There's so much that we need from you if you're an older generation in here. Let me give you a quick story about this. I was a youth pastor, and I used to sit with an older generation of wonderful saints every Wednesday morning. I'd sit for about an hour to hour 30. I would just open the Bible, and I would just teach them for an hour, an hour and a half, man. They would just consume it. And I walked in one morning, and I was really irritated, and they could definitely sense my irritation. And they're like, uh, Pastor Jay, why are you irritated? And I said, it's very simple. I'm potty training a young boy right now, and he's peeing everywhere. I'm cleaning up pee all day, and I just, I just don't know how to get him to go into the toilet. I just don't know what to do. Miss Fran, sweet, she passed away to go be with the Lord. I love Miss Fran to death. She raises her hand. She was a very blunt Christian kind of person, which is my, those are my people. Like if you're a blunt Christian, you can come and be as blunt as you want with me. It doesn't hurt my feelings. I have none. I love blunt Christians. She came up to me and she said, Jeremy, or she raised her hand in the back. She said, Jeremy, there's a, there's a simple fix for that. I said, Miss Fran, if there was a simple fix, I would have already done it. She's like, well, you just don't have a life, enough life experience, my young man. I said, well, do tell. She said, you take a Fruit Loop or a Cheerio, you throw it in the toilet, and you say, hit it. I'm like, oh my gosh, you should write a book. I never would have thought about that. Change the way we potty train for the rest of our lives. Where does it come from? Older generation pouring into the young. You've walked it, you've been through it, now we understand it. Teach us more than how to potty train our children, though. Teach us the truths of Scripture. So number one, you grow. Number two, you pray. Number three, you teach. It's very simple. Jesus says to teach your disciples all that I have commanded you. It's about teaching the Bible. You should never sit with your children, your spouse, or your disciples and never open the word of God. You teach them to memorize it. You teach them to pray it. You teach them to read it. You teach them to understand it. You teach them to interpret it. And you go, but wait a minute. I don't know how to do all of that. That's, let's go back to point one, which is growth. If you're not growing, then you're not teaching. And it is our job to sit down as disciple makers and teach them the word of God. So when you sit with your disciples, you should always sit and open your word. Should never be a moment where you're not, because if you're, listen, if you're, if you're sitting with people and just hanging out, then that's just hanging out. Discipleship occurs when you gather around the Word of God. This is why we do at equip groups. This is what we do at MCs. This is what we definitely do during the preaching event. It's about teaching. Number four, we invite them into our lives. Invite. Grow, pray, teach, invite. Invite your disciples into your life. One of the great evangelists of all time said, evangelism and discipleship is caught more than it is taught. Show them what living like a disciple looks like. 
Have them come to your house. Show them how you interact with your spouse. Show them how you interact with your kids. Bring them out with you when you go do mission work or when you go out into the world and share the gospel or when you walk around and pray. Invite them into your life. Invite them into your home so that they can see what kind of disciple you are and they go, okay, now it's making sense. And then I do this. I always invite myself into their lives. Okay, well, let me invite me to your house. So I can watch how you interact with your spouse and with your children. And I can say, these are things I see that you're doing well. And here's what I want to teach you to do better. You invite people into your homes. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. The dinner table is the most underutilized discipleship tool on the planet. You get more discipleship done around a dinner table than you do anywhere else. Because I've always said this. People got to put down their Christian weapons to pick up their eating utensils. And they love talking about things at the dinner table. If you're trying to reach somebody with the gospel right now, invite them to your home for dinner. Parents, listen to me. I know we're busy. I know. I have five. We have five. Katie doesn't like when I say I, because they're both of ours. They're only I's when they're bad. The dinner table is the best place for discipleship to take place with your kids. If you're not having family dinners, you're missing out. You're missing out on great opportunities to talk about Jesus. You're missing out on great opportunities to talk about the gospel, to talk about things that they're dealing and struggling with. And at the dinner table, that is the time, in our house at least, at the dinner table, that is the time where the most learning takes place and where the most laughing and loudness takes place. I guarantee you one thing. Our children will always say, I think, when they get older and leave our house, eventually, by the grace of God, they always say, you know what, mommy and daddy, we're busy. And, but the only time, that the, the best times that I remember are the best times when they would stay, sit, and eat, sit and eat dinner with us. Because that's when we laughed and that's when we learned about Jesus. Don't make it complicated. Just pour into them. Pour into them. Invite them into your lives. Number five, and lastly, discipleship is about sending. That's number five, sending. It's about sending your disciples out. Man, one of the most frustrating things about the American church is that right now in my, in my personal uh, like easy time in life, I, I'm, I'm reading The Hobbit again. I, just, I like J.R. Tolkien, whatever. You can judge me. I don't care. I have my identity secure in Jesus. And recent, yesterday I was reading and I was reading about Gollum. Gollum's the creature that gets the ring and uh, the ring just totally destroys his entire, human, his entire hobbit nature. And I think that a lot of churches, we're like golems. We get a group of disciples and we train them up and we teach them and they're like, oh, these are my precious. We're never letting them go. And that's terrible. We should not have golem discipleship. As disciples, we, have, we create these disciples so that they go out and they go make more disciples. Discipleship is a multiplication movement. It's a multiplication movement. Just because you're making disciples, you don't hoard them to yourselves. You send them on their way. Jesus shows this all the time. Jesus, after he does this, he kicks the twelve out to go make disciples of all nations. And they start in Jerusalem. They end up to the ends of the earth with Paul. And if you just go read Acts and see the multiplication of the Jesus discipleship movement. And it's happened throughout generation after generation after generation. When you're serious, when we are serious as a culture of discipleship, we are serious about a culture of multiplication. J.D. Greer talks about this math equation that his... his um, his middle school teacher gave him. The middle school teacher said, teaching this lesson, said this, which, which would you rather have? Would you rather have $10,000 a day for 30 days? Or would you rather start with a penny 
and double that pay for 30 days. Well, JD at that moment, he was like, oh, that's easy. 10 times 30, $300,000, give me the 300 grand. But if he was smart, like I was in high school, I'm just, I'm just kidding. JD, if you're watching this, I'm joking with you. But you're not watching this. But I was like, if I was smart, I would have known it was a trick. Like, I'm taking the penny because I know there's something up. The teacher wouldn't have asked that there wasn't something up. And, and the reality is that if you would have taken the penny, that compound interest would have made that over $5 million in 30 days. Think of the toys you could buy with that. If I had $5 million, first thing I would do is I'd buy this building and I would renovate and push it back so we don't have to have to cram 100 people into that little room ever again. Although it was fun. And I loved all the family atmosphere that we had that night. I'm not sure how much you heard about missional communities, but you saw them in action. Amen. Amen. All right. And so, <laughs> and so the reality is that that's the power of multiplication. The power of compound interest. We want to be a culture of discipleship that's all about compound interest. Let's just take, for example, 50 believers in that room. If 50 believers in that room took it upon themselves to commit to being a discipleship-making culture here at Center Church, and they did within one year, each of those 50 people reached one person for Jesus, that would be 100 people by this year. And then next year, if all 100 of those were discipled to reach one person for Jesus, that would be how many people? 100 plus 100. 200 people. I know you, some of you are like, oh, I remember Pastor Kyle just said, say Jesus. You could have said that and we would have been fine. But then if you have 200 people reaching one person for Jesus, the next year, how many people is that? 400 people. 400 people. Brothers and sisters, this is what we're all about. We want to see a culture of discipleship so engrafted and ingrained into you and into this church that it's going to be no problem to duplicate missional communities. That it would be no problem to pick up 30 of you and move you somewhere to plant a new church out of Center Church Brenham. It would be no problem to do that because we know that when you go, that that culture, discipleship, making, multiplication movement, it's just going to go with you. Because our goal, our our value, our, our what we're asking God to do is we are asking God to move every single partner from this cup to this cup. And when we move to this cup under the power and presence of Jesus, step back and watch God multiply. And then at the end, when they start asking Kyle and I to come talk about how did, it, how did, how did y'all do this, we're going to turn and be like, actually, we didn't do anything. We just made disciples and God did the rest. And that's what I always want to say when I get done with my life. Whatever God did, He gets the glory. So here's how I want to conclude today's sermon. I'm going to ask you to commit. I'm going to ask you to commit to being a culture of discipleship making. To commit to say, Jeremy, I'll come to Center Church to be poured into so that I can start to pour out. And I'm going to do that through growing. I'm going to do that through praying. I'm going to do that through teaching. I'm going to do that through inviting. And I'm going to do that through sending. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to pray right there in your seat. And if you say, Jeremy, yes, I'm going to commit myself to being a culture-making disciple at Center Church Brenham, I'm going to ask you in 30 seconds to stand and show and commit and say, this is me. I am going to be a part of this discipleship-making movement. And then I'm going to pray over you, and then we're going to go through it and have our time communion. So take 30 seconds right now and ask God, God, do you want me to be a part 
of this discipleship culture-making movement. If you're going to commit, if you're going to commit, if you believe the Lord is leading you to commit, to grow, to pray, to teach, to invite, to send out, and you're going to commit to being one of our partners in a culture of discipleship making movement, just stand right now. Father, I just pray over this group right now. Lord, I'm thankful that they had the courage to stand in this moment. Lord, that they are going to do this, that we're going to commit ourselves to being poured into so that we can pour out in such a way, Father, that we just watch you work and multiply. Father, I pray for every single person standing here right now. Lord, I pray that you would help them to to go and seek out people that would help them grow, that they would begin to begin now to having a, a prayer life of reaching people for Jesus and discipling those within this church, whether that be their spouse, their children or someone else. And Father, that they would begin to invite and teach the truths of Scripture, pour out into others, so that those others can go and begin to pour out into others. And Father, that we would see a multiplication movement like none other. So Father, use these commitments and these efforts for the advancement of your kingdom and the glory of your name. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.